If you know the movie Avatar, you know that a rich deposit of the mineral unobtainium lies under the forest floor on the planet Pandora. Now, in order to access said mineral, the Resources Development Association needs to remove the Navi from their home in the forest. Negotiations with this humanoid alien species go nowhere, and General Quaywich decides to destroy the home tree of the Omatakaya tribe. On Pandora, home trees are networks of ancient trees that grow together sometimes 150 meters in the sky. The Omatakaya have lived in this particular home tree for many, many generations. In just a few minutes, though, home tree is destroyed. Its foundation crumbles, trees snap, limbs snap. The Omatakaya watch as it falls to the ground in front of their eyes. Hundreds are killed in the assault. The rest walk away, homeless, heartbroken. We can only imagine what they were thinking. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Where will we go? What will we do? I thought of the destruction of home tree as I was preparing for our next message in our series on the book of Isaiah. As you probably know, we're studying the book of Isaiah here at Rooftop in an extended study. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet who lived in the uh, 8th century before the arrival of Christ to earth. He lived in the nation of Judah. Now, God had created the nation of Judah to be light to the nations, light to the world, and to live lives of, of, of holiness. Um, they didn't. God warned them that uh, they needed to. They refused. So finally, God sends a prophet to the nation of Judah to warn them of their imminent destruction. That prophet's name was Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is big and complicated, so we've broken it up into many series that have focused on different themes in the book, uh, themes like the character of God and the prophet Isaiah. What do we learn about him and about the sins of Judah? Uh, this next series that we started a couple weeks ago is called What Happened? I borrowed the title from Hillary Clinton's bestseller, in which she details her failed presidential bid of 2016. Depending on your political perspective, it tells a sad story or a happy tale, depending on your take. The book of Isaiah, though, clearly tells a sad story. It tells the story of what happened to Judah. Uh, one of those sad events was the destruction of their home tree, of the, nation, of the city of Jerusalem and their sacred temple. This is the event that Isaiah had been sent by God to predict. It was an absolutely cataclysmic event that shaped the future of God's people forever and even shapes our faith and our lives today. As such, we have much to learn from it. Now, the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple, they're actually not described in the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah lived and died prior to those actual events. But Isaiah does include poetic prophecies that foretell of the event. And I want to look at a couple with you this morning, starting on the very first pages of the book in chapter 1. Your country is desolate. Your city burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion... That's the people of God. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities in the Old Testament that are utterly wiped out. And a few chapters later, in chapter 3, the prophet writes this. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. 
All support of bread, all support of water. The mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the man of rank. A man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. For Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought this evil on themselves. Now, if you're curious, the actual destruction of Jerusalem and its temple is described in some other more historical books in the Old Testament, notably the book of 2 Kings and the book of 2 Chronicles. But the gist of the story is that after centuries of holding on in a hostile neighborhood with lots of powerful nations surrounding them, Judah just couldn't anymore. With the help of God, they had fended off their enemies. They had fended off the Syrians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. But then a new nation eventually rises, the nation of Babylon. Babylon wanted the riches that they had seen in Jerusalem. They wanted the land. They wanted the trade routes upon which Judah sat. So in 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon set a siege against the city. He blocked the city's entrances and exits to starve the population. He built ramparts to overtake the walls. Jerusalem held out for a while. The Babylonians held out longer. They starved the king. They broke through the walls. They actually tried negotiating with the leadership of Jerusalem, but the leadership of Jerusalem proved to be a bit too recalcitrant to negotiate with. So eventually Nebuchadnezzar just decides to burn the place down. And the author of Chronicles records the event in terrifying brevity. God brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary, spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces, destroyed everything of value there. If you can, imagine the drama and the tragedy of this moment. It might help if you can actually appreciate some things. For example, God's people had been living in Judah for 664 years. That's over twice the age of America. Jerusalem had been their capital for 417 years. D.C. has been our capital for 230. Solomon's temple... They had been worshiping at Solomon's temple for 371 years. Is there a building in America that has stood for twice as long, or half as long? And in the span of a few months, all this was just destroyed, burned, blown to bits. Imagine, if you will, watching your most sacred buildings being attacked. (gasps) We don't need to imagine that. We saw it happen. But imagine that building being four times as old, more meaningful, and completely destroyed. 
The temple was their sacred place of worship. Jerusalem was their sacred home. This was their home tree. Imagine losing it. It reminds me of the sad ending to Fiddler on the Roof. Of course, right. No Matt Hernan sermon will be complete without a musical theater reference. So Fiddler tells the story of the Russian purge of the Jews in Eastern Europe during the uh, late 19th century as the Russian army burns down ancient Jewish villages one by one. As the lead character, Tevye, puts it, this corner of the world has always been our home. Where will we go next? Or if you're not in a musical theater, try actual history, although Fiddler's based on history. Uh, During the Bosnian War in the 90s, the siege of Sarajevo destroyed the city, killed tens of thousands, sent refugees around the world, many of whom relocated here to our fair city. If you know any Bosnian friends, good chance they might be here because of the siege of Sarajevo. Or, towards the end of World War II, Nazi Germany executed the destruction of Warsaw, Poland, The Nazis raised 90% of the buildings, including art museums, churches, palaces. People died or were forced to leave their ancient homeland. So the destruction of Jerusalem is not some isolated incident. We might have a hard time imagining it, but millions of people over the course of human history don't. Here's what's unique about the destruction of Jerusalem, though. According to Isaiah, this was God's doing. This wasn't some action by some pagan king. This was not King Nebuchadnezzar's war. This was the work of Yahweh. Yahweh, the God who had delivered them from Egypt, led them to the promised land. Yahweh, who had turned them from a bunch of dirty slaves into a glorious nation with a name. That God, their God, their father, had done this to them. This was Isaiah's claim, at least. What does he say in chapter 3? For behold, the Lord God of hosts... The head of the heavenly army is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. The general of the heavenly armies is withdrawing his support. You're on your own. God did this. And this was the conclusion of the author of Chronicles too. God brought against them the king of the Babylonians. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. God had done this. Now why? Well, because of their sin. Because for centuries they had refused to listen to him. They had ignored his call to to serve the poor, to live lives of of purity and and love and trust. The people of Judah were not innocent. They weren't the the Navi of Pandora, uh, happily living their peaceful alien lives at one with the forest. The people of Judah were sinners who were finally getting what they deserved. In fact, this was not God's doing as much as it was theirs. As Isaiah writes, for Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen because their speech, their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Woe to them, they have brought evil on themselves. Be that as it may, imagine the confusion. How could God do this? Why would God do this? What does it mean? Where will we go? What will we do? We'll actually find the next stage of Judah's journey next week to tease it a little bit in an effort to remove any threat from Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar carts off most of the remaining population in Jerusalem to Babylon, where the residents of Judah live in exile, 
putting the pieces together, trying to figure out what just happened. But before we get to the exile, we should think deeply about God's destruction of their temple and city. What did it mean? How could it have happened? I mean, most of us are not Jewish here, but we have a lot to learn from this tragic event. And that's the question that I want to talk about with you this morning. What do we have to learn from the destruction of Jerusalem? I mean, it's the most tragic thing to happen to God's people in the Old Testament. What do we have to learn from it? I can think of a few short lessons that I want to share with you this morning. First, we learn that God keeps his promises. Good and bad. God keeps his promises. Good and bad. Truth be told, the destruction of Judah was not just foretold by the prophet Isaiah. It was actually foretold centuries earlier by another prophet, the prophet Moses. It wasn't necessarily a prophecy per se, but when God first brought his people into the land of Canaan as their new homeland, out of Egypt, God led his people from the slavery of Egypt into the, the promised land of Canaan. And when he did that, he made an agreement with them. He made a covenant with them. And Moses, their savior who had led them from Egypt, was the mediator of this agreement, this covenant. And this covenant stipulated that God was giving them this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God was giving them this land so that they could be a light to the nations. And they could stay in this land and he would bless them if they lived holy lives and did what he said. If they didn't, bad things would happen. They would be treated like just another nation. That was stipulated in the agreement at the very beginning. The book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament is sort of a record of that agreement. Moses writes in the book of Deuteronomy, centuries before Isaiah, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then Moses goes on to list all the blessings that they had to look forward to if they obeyed him. But there is a flip side to Deuteronomy. Moses continues, however... If you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You will be cursed when you come in, cursed when you go out. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. Listen to this. The Lord will drive you out to a nation unknown to you or your fathers. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. These conditions had been given at the very founding of this nation. Isaiah is just restating what God through Moses had already said centuries before. If you live holy lives, I will bless and protect you. If you don't, I will remove my blessing. You'll be just another nation. Now, honestly, if you know the story of of God's people, they get off track pretty quickly. Like within a few generations after entering the promised land, they're already worshiping pagan idols and like sacrificing their children to pagan idols. God put up with them for a long time, but he does have his limits. And since he is a God of his word, he chooses to punish as sure as he chooses to bless. This is not something that we're comfortable with, honestly. We like thinking about God keeping his good promises, but not his bad promises. 
But how would that work? What would it mean for us if God just blessed us all the time, every day, regardless of how we lived our lives? We would lose any incentive to obey him. I mean, if my children could live their life without fear of negative consequence from their parents, their selfishness and greed would take over our household. (laughs) Even with the threat of punishment, sometimes it does. (laughs) Right living requires bad things to happen to us if we do bad. Even Jesus says in the Gospels that he will reward those who care for the sick and hungry, but he knows not everybody will be interested in doing that, and those people won't receive the same treatment. At the final judgment, Jesus says he will say to those who don't, depart from me, you who are cursed. Into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Some of us, will receive that promise. God has promised to punish his people who fail to obey him. We might not like to think about that. We might like to think about God's promises to bless us instead, but he makes all kinds of promises, good promises, bad promises, and as a God of his word, he will keep them. God keeps his promises, good and bad. Something else we have to learn from the destruction of Jerusalem is this. Nothing is too sacred to destroy. Nothing is too sacred to destroy. Jerusalem and its temple were holy sites. This city had been founded as the home city of God. The temple had been built as the house of God. The Old Testament Jews practically believed that God lived in the temple. And the temple also included sacred objects of devotion that have been collected over the centuries. The Ark of the Covenant, artifacts of history. I mean, Solomon's temple was a glorious museum to the theological history of Israel and Judah. I mean, imagine, if you will, the Smithsonian going up in flames and all that was lost inside of it. Imagine the Louvre in France being utterly destroyed and all the history lost. But nothing is too sacred for God to destroy. These are sacred spaces, but nothing is too sacred for God to destroy. The city of Jerusalem, it was God's city. He can destroy it if he wants. The temple is God's house. He can burn it if he pleases. If they lose their meaning, if they lose their significance, what's the point of letting them stand? It reminds me of an encounter that Jesus had with the leaders of Jerusalem 600 years after the destruction of the Jewish temple. Uh, Not to get ahead of ourselves, But eventually God's people, like I said, would return from exile and rebuild Jerusalem. They would actually rebuild the temple. This period, this next period of Israel's history is called the Second Temple Period. I frankly think it's kind of a boring name, Second Temple Period. They could have done a little bit better than that, like Temple Part (laughs) Deux or Temple Redux. But, side note, the temple lingering in the background of Jesus' ministry is the rebuilt temple. But if you can believe this, God's people made the same mistake with the second temple as they did with the first. Instead of being a place of holiness and generosity and prayer, the temple became a place of hypocrisy and pride. Jesus himself was a prophet and predicted that the second temple would be destroyed also, and it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, 
And in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus predicts this event. In the Gospel of uh, Matthew chapter 24, the author writes this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to all these big, beautiful buildings. Look at all these big, beautiful buildings, Master. Nice brick walls and beautiful stained glass. Look at all this lovely religious architecture, Lord. What does Jesus say? See all these things? Eh? Hmm? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. The Jews in Jesus' day could not imagine that a temple so sacred and huge could be torn down, even though it had happened once already. And at Jesus' trial, they accuse him of blasphemy for having the audacity to suggest that the temple might fall. There's no way that God would allow that to happen, they thought. But it did happen twice. So twice, God destroyed his own temple. Twice, God destroyed his own city. My point here is that nothing is too sacred for God to destroy. The temple had twice become a symbol of the hypocrisy and arrogance and violence of God's people. God knew the city had become just an empty symbol. People thought that they were special, not because of the quality of their lives, but because they just lived in Jerusalem. So God takes their city away to expose the ruse. I think this is important for us to understand. Nothing is too sacred for God to destroy. I'm going out on a limb here, and I ask for your grace if you think I'm speaking too boldly, but in this respect, I fear for the American church. I mean, last week, we saw people calling themselves Christians, holding Bibles and crosses while charging the Capitol. They're not alone. According to the book, Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States, 20% of Americans call themselves Christian nationalists. Many more support the cause. Many of them support racist, xenophobic, socially oppressive, militaristic policies. In all kinds of other ways, too, Christians look no different from our pagan neighbors. We see Christians engaging in the same conspiracy theories and untruths that the world believes. We see Christians living the same sexually promiscuous lives that the rest of America lives. We see Christians collecting guns and weapons at the same rate the world does for less than recreational purposes. We see Christians divorcing at the same rate that the world does. We see Christians being as greedy with their money as the world is. We see Christians following political leaders with the same cult-like devotion that the world does. Not all Christians, of course. Not everybody. Probably not you. But enough to make us worried. What do you think will happen to us? Do you think we will just continue to exist and expect to be blessed by God? Do you think that the American church is too important, too special for God to not destroy? Do you think that we're too privileged? Do you think that, you know, we've been around too long? We're too powerful. We're too important. Do you think God needs us? He doesn't. Didn't need the temple, didn't need Jerusalem, doesn't need us. Nothing is too sacred for God to destroy. The destruction of the first temple should have taught us that. The destruction of the second temple should have taught us that. Let our demise not be the destruction of the third. That's the second thing we have to learn. Nothing is too sacred for God to destroy. And finally, we have to learn. 
that the seeds of hope lie in the ruin of destruction. The seeds of hope lie in the ruin of destruction. As we'll talk about, something important happened in the destruction of the temple. Something important, something good. God revealed to his people that he's not some local pagan deity who needs a house to live in. God actually went with them to Babylon. That's not something that pagan gods were capable of doing. God proved that he doesn't need the temple. He can go anywhere. He lives everywhere. Even with that, though, God was planting seeds of hope, even as he brought about the ruin of his city. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament comes from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was another prophet in the nation of Judah. Jeremiah lived a few decades after Isaiah. Isaiah predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. Isaiah predicted the destruction of the temple. Jeremiah saw it. Jeremiah saw Nebuchadnezzar scale the walls. Jeremiah saw the Babylonian soldiers burn the temple down. He watched the people round up and march off to Babylon. While all this is going on, though, God has Jeremiah do an incredibly strange thing. God has Jeremiah buy property in Jerusalem. See the irony of this. The city is collapsing around him. Everybody's either dead or being carted off. Not a good time to invest in real estate. Market's not very strong. You're basically buying ruins. But God tells Jeremiah to buy some land in the city. Why? As the prophet writes, for this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Houses, fields, vineyards will again be bought in this land. Jeremiah realizes his family is going to need land in Jerusalem again someday. He knows he's going to be dead, but his family's going to come back. The city will come back. It looks over for Judah, but it's never really over. What God destroys, he only destroys so that he may rebuild. And this is important for us to understand too. Uh, There might be a certain amount of destructive judgment going on in your life. Maybe your career is falling apart. Maybe your family is completely falling apart. Maybe your marriage is completely falling apart. Maybe your health Maybe your life is just falling apart. I don't claim to know why, but it might be because of your own sinful choices. You have to be open to that possibility that your life is falling apart because you've made a mess of it. We have to be open to that possibility. The condition of our lives is not always everybody else's fault. God promises to bless us, but he also promises to curse us because of our sin. But, here's my point, whatever God destroys, he only destroys so he may rebuild. That includes our lives too. He only destroys Jerusalem so he may rebuild it later. And we see this so perfectly in the life of his son Jesus. Six centuries after the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jewish Messiah finally touched down on earth. His name was Jesus. Jesus was executed by the Jewish leadership and the Roman government. And dying on the cross, Jesus received the judgment of God and his nation and on all of our sin. The judgment that we are due because of our sin, because of our lust, because of our violence. Jesus paid that judgment. Jesus took care of it. He gave his life to destruction so that we may not be destroyed. That's our promise. If we believe, if we believe in the work of Jesus, we can be spared the judgment of God. But it doesn't just have to end there. 
Not only can we be spared the judgment of God, not only can we be forgiven in Jesus Christ, we can be raised with him as well. God allowed Jesus to be destroyed only so he would be raised. And his resurrection is a symbol of how we will be raised. We will be raised as new creatures living where? According to the book of Revelation, we will be living in the new Jerusalem. It's a symbol of the new life we can experience even here on earth. I mean, your family might be falling apart, but by faith, God can raise it up. Don't give up on it. God only destroys what he intends to rebuild. Your marriage might be falling apart, but don't give up on it. If God is destroying it, he's only doing so to rebuild it into something better. Your career might be falling apart, but don't give up on it. If he's destroying it, he's only destroying it so he can build it into something better. God only destroys what he intends to rebuild. And this is one of the things that communion reminds us of. Communion, something followers of Jesus have been practicing for hundreds, thousands of years. It's, in our understanding, communion is a symbolic reenactment of who we are as God's people. We are his family, his children, gathered around the table, the dinner table, being reminded of who we, why we are who we are. We are his children because of what his one and only son Jesus did on the cross, dying for our sins so that we can be forgiven when we drink from the cup, we're reminded of his blood poured out for us. When we eat from the bread, we're reminded of his body broken for us. We're also reminded of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus' life did not end in death. Jesus had to die only so he could be raised. As we take communion this morning, give yourself permission to have Jeremiah's hope. Though it may feel like your city has been burned, though it might feel like your life is falling apart, that God is judging you for your sin, If it is, it's only so he can bring you back. So if you would then, go ahead and take out your self-serve communion cup. Peel back the thin top layer. This wafer represents the body of Christ given for you. Eat it in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Peel back the next layer. This cup is the cup of the new covenant made between us and our Father. Represents the blood of Christ poured out for you Drink it in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the honor and the privilege of learning from one of the great tragedies of the Old Testament, maybe the greatest. the moment of your profound judgment which you had promised hundreds of years before so that if at all possible it could be avoided Uh, you're a, a good and loving father but you know you need to discipline sinners you don't like doing it but you know you need to because you are God of justice And because sin must be punished. We live in a world filled with it. 
uh, violence, racism, corruption, death, war. We might live pretty, pretty okay lives on a day-to-day basis, not uh, see a lot of terrible things in our lives, but we fall way short of the glory of God, and we are part of a, of a species Uh, that has been corrupted by centuries of of sin. But you love us too much to give up on us. So even though we deserve your judgment, you made a way in the gospel to judge us, but also in a way that allows us to be forgiven and allows us to live forever as new creatures in the new Jerusalem. Thank you for Jesus, his sacrifice, which allows us to escape the judgment of Jerusalem. Even as we have to accept the consequences of our actions, that's just kind of how life works. We make stupid choices, we have to accept those consequences. But we need not die forever because of them, because of what Jesus did. It's by our faith that we may escape. And it is our hope that upon our death we will live forever with him and with one another. I pray that on that basis we can have hope in uh, who you are and what you want. I know that people in this room are struggling to have hope. That our, our lives, though they might be falling apart, we can have hope that you won't let them fall apart beyond repair. Marriages, families, bodies, careers, finances can be rebuilt. Whatever is destroyed is Destroyed only so that you can rebuild it. So give us hope that you will. Thank you for this morning, our opportunity to be together, to learn from your word. Pray for our nation this week. As we go through a obviously rocky transition, we pray against the violence. Pray that God's people can be voices of truth and love and peace. And we repent for the extent to which we have not been that. We close our prayer time this morning, Father, by praying together the words of the Lord's Prayer, words that your son, Jesus, taught his disciples to pray, words that will appear on the screen. Our Father, who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.